What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Soccer and Snow and Smoke, the new soccer podcast from ESPN Missoula. I'm Andrew Houghton. I told you last week when we came back from the holiday break that we had some good stuff for you coming up on Soccer and Snow and Smoke after I took a month off over the holidays. We're doing the second one in a week here. We're just hitting them boom, boom, boom in the studio with University of Montana business professor Justin Engel, a longtime friend of Nuanez Now. Mm-hmm. Always enjoy his appearances on the Nuanez Now radio show. Justin, thanks for coming on, and thanks for letting me use your, your sweet studio, Studio 49, here at the University of Montana Business School. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for asking me. This is something that I've I've had in mind, you know, since I started this podcast, because I listen to you talk with Coulter every two weeks, and I've always loved that segment. I know a lot of our listeners love that segment, too, because it brings a different angle, of course. Right, right. Dun-dun-dun. To, to the stuff that we're talking about on, on sports radio and Soccer is just such a, a ripe field for talking about the money behind it, right? Yeah. The the economics behind it, because soccer's economic structure is a lot different from those of American sports. And it's, you know, you hear it's the most popular sport in the world. Well, that comes with so much money behind it. And that sort of colors the game and shapes the game in a lot of interesting ways. So that's what I wanted to talk about today. I thought I'd, I'd just, you know, get your thoughts, man. Tell me, you know, your background with soccer. You're not something that you follow a ton, right? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd say that I'm a casual fan. I, I grew up playing soccer. It was a big part of my life. Um, my high school did not have football. Soccer was kind of the dominant sport, and um, we had a good good team. Um, so it was a big part of my life for a long time. That, that abruptly ended when I got cut from my college soccer team and uh, switched to rowing, um, but I still you know, played summer league and just stayed interested in the game. And I have tried to follow some professional soccer. When I lived in Seattle, um, would go to Sounders games occasionally and loved what they were doing kind of the, as the MLS was kind of coming up and, and gaining some, some, some steam. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you talk about, you know, the, the, some of the business issues that you referenced there, you know, how, how, how money flows and, and how, it, how to sort of think about professional soccer in contrast to our professional sports here in the United States. It's really kind of a hard question to get your head around um, because there's so many different iterations of soccer internationally. You know, the, you know, all these different continents have different leagues, different countries have different systems. So, you know, just kind of coming up with a framework for how to address um, an analysis of this is a challenge for me. Yeah, I think the simplest way to talk about it is there are, you know, every country has a professional soccer league. Yeah. That is one, that's one intertwined market. I mean, these teams are all shopping on the same market for players. I mean, you can buy players from South America, from Europe, whatever. And that's sort of one of the biggest differences as well, I realize as I'm saying it. You're buying players, right? You're not yeah. you're not drafting them. You can sign them as free agents, mm-hmm. but you're not trading for them with teams in your league. You can buy players from, from all around the world. And that sort of lends a lot to the complexity of it, because it is. I mean, you, you're teams in in the second division in Bulgaria are shopping in the same market technically as as Real Madrid and Barcelona, right? Yeah, I think though that like uh, complexity's an interesting term in this case. I mean if you, if you think about complexity like the American systems of sports with drafts and constrained supply and collusion amongst the owners. I mean it, it ironically approaches uh, in many ways some forms of socialism. Socialism amongst very rich 
um, team owners, right? But they, it's a very structured system. It's a very regulated system. And then you throw in the, the unions that the, that the professional leagues have there. There's a ton of complexity in that. We're used to it, so it might not seem that complex. Soccer is much more of a you know, free market environment, right? Supply is is not restricted by any kind of boundaries. Uh, teams own players in a way they don't. Um, and they, as you said before, they buy players in a way. So players are kind of raw material and the supply is much more, um, you know, supply and demand kind of float freely and the market often clears in a way that it does not in American professional sports. Well, and we see that because developing players is a way to succeed it for, mm-hmm. a, for a lot of teams. I mean, if you're not competing at the absolute top level of, of world soccer, one way that you can still be successful is by developing players, the raw materials like you're talking about, selling them off to the bigger clubs, to the, the bigger countries. And that's a way that you can often be successful in your own league. I mean, that's not something that you would ever see in American sports because the point is to win. Yeah, I mean, you see it a little bit in baseball, right? Like sure. some trade will package a bunch of minor league prospects that nobody's ever heard of. But, you know, years down the road, that ends up being a good investment. So right. the, the, the end goal is still to, to win the World Series against right. the team that you, you've traded the players to, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I guess you could pursue a strategy of developing. You, you could pursue a business strategy of developing talent, selling that talent off. You could make a lot of money as a business. You might not win a game or you, you might not be a dominant team pursuing championships, but it could be a really good business. Yeah, and I guess the other thing here is that, like you said, I mean, American sports are just so constrained by these rules. And, and the rules, I mean, the, the draft, the certain constraints around when you can get to free agency, mm-hmm. et cetera, they're there for, for competitive balance. That's the thing that you hear a lot for American sports, right? Parity. But, but really, they're there to, to save owners money, right? Yeah. Yeah. To, to keep costs down because you have structured costs of, of when players are entering the league. I mean, draft contracts are very structured and prescribed. They're, they're certain amounts. And, of course, it's not a free market because you can only negotiate with the team that drafts you. Soccer's not like that. Yeah. Soccer, you're, you're free to sign with any team. They're free to sell you to any team. You can leave as a free agent, but there's no there's no structured contract. I mean, like in baseball where it's six years before you reach free agency. Well, in soccer, it's whatever you, however long you sign the contract for. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think, too, like it's, it's another kind of, you know, the American leagues, football, basketball, baseball, I guess you can include hockey in this. You know, they have – hockey, not so much because there is a pretty robust league system in Europe – but they have these local monopolies, right? Like, yeah, if you don't like the terms of the deals you're kind of being presented with in the NFL, yeah, you could go play for the CFL, but, you know, that's not high-level competition relative to the NFL. If you don't like, if you're in the Premier League and you want to go play in South America or play in Italy or, you know, play in Germany, like, there's great options for that. You know, in some seasons, arguably better teams. So there is this kind of parity um, where you can switch to other markets and not really pay a cost as an athlete. And I think those sorts of that sort of open market dynamic pre- prevents the leagues and the owners within those leagues from establishing some of those constraints um, just because they don't have the market power. If they try to impose those those artificial market constraints, like it's a form of price fixing, right? To, to say that you can't achieve 
free agency until year six. It's a form of price fixing. And an athlete, you know, Major League Baseball doesn't like that. They're not going to go play in Japan. Maybe they will. Well, we're seeing that right now, of course, with the lockout in Major League Baseball that is just grinding along. But that's because they have to settle these questions Mm -hmm. of, you know, how long is it going to be before a player reaches free agency? And there's protracted negotiations going on right now. Yeah, and the player, like, their only choice is to go on strike. Like, they can't all go play in Japan. Right. Whereas, you know, Premier League players don't like some new rule that the Premier League inserts, they're going to go elsewhere. And the owners can't do anything about that. Right, because that would hurt the Premier League, too, because Mm -hmm. all of your best players are suddenly playing in Spain now. You're going to lose market share. You're going to lose revenue. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the analogy of American sports or art of socialism as world soccer is. It's sort of just unfettered capitalism. I mean, it's, it's as much ways. as a free market yeah. as you're going to find yeah. in, in sports. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and you see, you know, and you know more about this than I do, Andrew, but you also see some corruption. I mean, there, there's lots of reasons why somebody would want to own a professional sports team. Sometimes it's a prestige uh, purchase. Sometimes it's a fantastic money-making opportunity. Historically, they've sort of been like hobby ownership for billionaires, right? Um, but you're also seeing it as as convenient places for oligarchs and other people with nefarious uh, pasts and presence to park some money and you know maybe move money through a, a legitimate business relative to other pursuits. I'm not necessarily making specific allegations here, but you're seeing uh, that unrestrained capitalism kind of come close to some uh, some moral and regulatory lines right now. Like American sports, it's, it's a closed club, right? Essentially, yeah. to yeah. buy in. If the other owners in the league don't like you, you're not going to be able to buy the team. And those mm-hmm. owners are constantly weighing up, you know, what is this guy's money worth against potential negative press that he oh, yeah. could bring to the league? In soccer, that, that doesn't happen. So you have situations like, I mean, several of the most famous Premier League teams are owned by shady guys or just <laughs> out outright government organizations. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Newcastle United was just bought by a, a company that essentially is the, the Saudi Arabian government. Of course... Manchester City bought by um, the Emirati royal family. And it, it's such an interesting situation because Manchester City went from being sort of a downtrodden team, and of course they're the second team in Manchester to Manchester United, to being one of the richest teams in the world because this, this government that has essentially unlimited resources bought them, pumped a ton of money into them, they won the title. Now that brand has been hugely inflated, but because of the money going into it, and that reflects well on sort of the owners behind the club, right? Yeah, I mean, everybody likes a winner, right? And if you're in the city and you're, if that's your club that you're rooting for, you can kind of look the other way on some nefarious actions from your owner. But also, like like you said before, with unfettered kind of unconstrained capitalism, you can become successful quickly. If you have enough money to put in place the, the pieces you need to produce uh a successful team, you can do that relatively quickly. You got to make good choices to do it, but with a ton of money to burn, your degrees of freedom are higher. Well, and that's the thing. It happens in American sports, right? Mm-hmm. The Yankees, the Dodgers are sort are the teams to beat every year because they can spend more money. But because of the artificial constraints that are sort of placed on it, I mean, the worst team gets the first pick in the draft every yep. year. That's a huge advantage. You can see sort of poor teams winning. Yeah, everybody is more or less on the same level. Or the levels are, you know, 
The Yankees have a $300 million payroll. Okay. The Rays have a $70 million payroll. That's an event, you know, four times whatever. In soccer, you can see 20 times, 40 times. So it stratifies the sport a lot. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know necessarily how what kind of predictions I would make, but you know, in the United States, take you know, football, basketball, baseball. Like, you know, there's people that have argued um, like basketball has expanded too much. There's too many franchises, and you know, I think one of the mechanisms that allows for that is this collusion um, across the franchises. You know, yes, the Knicks have a larger media market and probably have more resources. But there are structural constraints to how they can use those resources. So you see a, a, an area where you know owners are like, well, I can't go, I can't spend, you know, unfettered resources and create the best team possible. So I might as well act in such a way where I cr- contribute to a rising tide and vote yes to a new team in Oklahoma City because I know that even though it. You know, there might not be demand for another franchise or another franchise might not be in my own best interests if there weren't all these constraints. Because there are these collusionary systems, you know, I voting to expand the league creates benefits for the owners in bigger markets. You don't see that in, in soccer. Um, and I think maybe because we're talking about United States versus kind of the rest of the world, and the rest of the world is a really big place. I think we sometimes, uh, you know, um, lose sight of how big it is and how many cities and people and and markets are out there. There are enough markets where, you know, you can have. There's just more degrees of freedom, right? For for more franchises and you know a, a bigger playing field, so to speak, allows for, um, you know, that that market to operate more efficiently. Andrew Houghton here talking on the Soccer and Snow and Smoke podcast with University of Montana business professor Justin Angle. Justin, of course, a frequent contributor to the Nuan Has Now show and podcast. I'm really happy to have him on with me talking some of the the complexities and some of the quirks of of soccer's economic system and and how it makes it look different to to American sports. And I guess the, the question here, Justin, is Clearly, American sports owners and leagues have decided that their system works Mm -hmm. because that is the system that we see in every American sports league. This sort of competing system, the European system, which we see in soccer, but I mean also um, in sports like Formula One, spending is much less restrained. Is, Is it good or bad? Well, I mean, it depends on what you want, right? Sure. Like, are you good or bad for the fans? Good or bad for the athletes? Good or bad for the owners? I think you could evaluate that question on a bunch of different levels. I mean, the one thing that I think, um, I, th- I think it's good for athletes if they have more more options, right, and less constraints on their ability to monetize their talents. Um, and I think that one of the things that is interesting to me about soccer is the relegation concept. You know, you have to play hard to the end or you risk being kicked out of the club, essentially, right? 
in American sports, we don't have that. In fact, we've got reverse incentives, and it gets talked about in the NBA all the time. Like in the second half of a season, if a team's struggling, the pundits will say, oh, yeah, they should just tank it and get a top draft pick. You don't have those disincentives to performance, um, whether or not, you know, who knows if those are ever acted on by NBA teams. It's it's hard to say. Right. Um, but it does, when there's doubt and then when there are uh, explicit ex- uh, incentives to underperform that creates all kinds of wacky dynamics in the marketplace, which I think ultimately is, is bad for athletes. Like if you're stuck on a team that is tanking to get a draft pick, even if there's talk of it tanking to get a draft pick, you're not going to be able to, you know, perform at the level you need to perform at to monetize your talents in an open marketplace because it's not an open marketplace under those conditions. Well, not even in the in the marketplace. I mean, in the, in the product, right? Exactly. Because yeah. And even not even for like Philadelphia 76ers fans when they were tanking famously a couple years ago, but just for the league, because if I'm a Boston Celtics fan, I don't want to go see the Sixers play in Boston when I know that they're fielding a team of subpar players, right? Because they're purposely trying to tank. So yeah, I mean, soccer removes those disincentives, like you said, and it's sort of a counter to... The stratification, like we talked about, I mean, soccer at the very highest levels is dominated by a handful of teams because there is unrestricted spending and because spending is so correlated to winning, mm-hmm. when you can pump a ton of money into it, it sort of removes the a lot of the competitiveness from the league. I mean, every NBA team believes that, not that they can go into the season and win the championship because fans are realistic about where their team is on the competitiveness curve, but that if they make the right decisions in 10 years, they could be competing for a championship. Every team in, in the MLB, every team in the NBA, every team in the NFL, certainly in the NFL, believes that in soccer, that's just not realistic. That's only realistic for, I mean, in the Premier League, that's realistic for six, maybe seven teams out of the 20-team league. Right. And that's sort of the, the biggest drawback or criticism, I would say, of, of the free market in soccer, right? If it's If it's a free market and there's unrestricted spending and some teams just have 20 times the revenue of the others, it, it removes a lot of the competitiveness. But the other the, sort of the rebuttal to that is, yes, but everybody still has something to play for mm-hmm. because you're trying to avoid relegation. You're trying to, to qualify for Europe. I mean, for a lot of these teams where you're not going to finish first, if you have a good season, you can finish sixth, then you're playing in the, in the Europa League next right. year. And that's huge revenue for the team and, of course, prestige. And if you're you're at the bottom, I mean... Being relegated and not being relegated, the difference is, is I mean, that's the biggest economic difference it's in the huge. league. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think the concept of relegation brings with it some really interesting incentives. I think that improve the quality of the product. Um, I could see it never flying in United States sports. I mean, no owner of a current franchise is going to agree to a system in which the value of their asset you know, could could be cut in half overnight at the whims of, you know, with some uncertainty, right? Um, however, like it does create a system where, yeah, the, the correlation between spending and performance is high in soccer. And so it creates direct incentives to spend. I think you're right, though, like just because there are other opportunities for teams to monetize um, their franchises in ways. We mentioned one before, talent development. That could be a good business. Uh, you know, Manchester United doesn't win the championship every year. It's always in the mix. You could say that about certain teams in the NBA, NFL, or or, or, um, or baseball. 
So, you know, I'm not convinced that this unfettered spending leads to worse outcomes for athletes and fans. Um, yeah, the counterfactual is hard to kind of consider. Right, right. And I think the costs of imposing uh, th- there's cost to imposing artificial market constraints, and it's also difficult to do at the world scale. And then if you try to do it at the at the league scale, athletes can escape that and go to other leagues where, you know, the, the market the market will determine like okay, you know, the league in Germany, the Bundesliga, I think it's called, you know, is better for athletes than the Premier League, and then that the you know, the market will clear in that way. This is Soccer in Snow and Smoke, the new soccer podcast from ESPN Missoula. I'm Andrew Houghton, and on Soccer in Snow and Smoke, I'll bring you everything you need to know about the beautiful game, from the Montana Grizzlies and local high school programs to the Premier League. Listen to the Footy 15 segment twice a month on Nuanez Now, 4 to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday on 102.9 ESPN Missoula, and find the full show online on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I don't know how much you heard about this, but the attempted Super League breakaway. Yes. Last year, in in 2021, was such a flashpoint, I think, for a lot of those reasons that we're talking about, because that was an attempt to create a a closed system, essentially, because these 15 or 16 teams would be competing against each other, and these are the true giants of the sport. I mean, the, the big six in the Premier League, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich... Paris Saint-Germain in France. These are, I mean, this was a, a really good selection of, of the top 15 clubs in the mm-hmm. world attempting to break away and create their own system. I mean, these clubs have to qualify for the Champions League every year, and the Champions League is sort of the European competition, knockout competition. It's the pinnacle of, pinnacle of the sport, really, because it's teams from all across Europe competing against each other. These teams are usually always in it, but that's not a given because you have to qualify you for perform. it. You've got to qualify for it every year. And for a team like Manchester United, missing the Champions League, which they've done, you know, in the past, is such a huge blow to their finances because they're counting on that money being there every year yeah. when they're buying players and paying players. So what these teams did is said, well, that's ridiculous. We we need to be in this league every year, so we're going to break away and create our own league. The reaction the rebuttal to this from from the fan community of course fans of teams who are not these teams but also a lot of fans of these teams was just that's ridiculous i mean you're taking away something of the soul of the game and that's a little bit over dramatic maybe uh but they were quickly convinced to drop this proposal yeah that was such an interesting story i mean it, it makes sense from an economic standpoint that we would get to a point where those top 10 or 15 teams say, yeah, we're going to create, you know, we've built these castles and we're going to create a wall around all of our castles and play our own game and hoard all the money for ourselves. I mean, that is sort of capitalism taken to its natural extent or meritocracy. People like to use the ladder analogy, right? Like I climbed the ladder and now I'm going to pull the ladder up and just dip it down to the people I want to dip it down to. And that's one of the critiques of meritocracy as a system. Um, what is interesting to me was the fan reaction seemed to have an effect. Yes. Right? Like the, the owners kind of got a little weak need when the fans just took to Twitter, took to the streets in many ways, 
And, you know, I don't know if, if maybe it's because, you know, a lot of these soccer franchises, their tie to place, I think, is distinct and more historically deep than some of the ties to place that we have in American sports. You know, these clubs essentially started with, you know, working athletes from the local community that were deeply identified with place. And, you know, yeah, it's not so much that way anymore when you're hiring players from all over the world, but the club itself has that level of identification with the people that you might have it in some places in the States, but it's still more ephemeral and, and, and not quite as deep, I think. It's so true. It's absolutely true. There's a million ways. That's such a great point. Yes. Um, and these clubs are often more active political symbols mm-hmm. um, than any of the sports teams in America. And so, yes, I mean, I think a lot of power does reside with the fans because, look, I mean, when Las Vegas Raiders fans or Philadelphia 76ers fans, when they were tanking, say that we're not going to go to the games. I mean, how seriously can you really take that? Because they're still they're still a part of the league and there's no tradition of that in American sports. Yeah. Yeah. In in soccer, if Manchester United fans say, well, if you're doing this, we're not going to come to the games, there's a little kernel of truth, a little bit of belief behind that because, like you said, they're so connected with the community. So I think fans maybe do have a little bit more of the power than American sports. I think the interesting parallel here, talking about the Super League, talking about this, this local sense of place, mm-hmm. college football, right? Yeah, yeah, like the SEC and all of that. Yeah, and you know several of the, the the Power Five schools are now threatening to create their own breakaway league. There's been rumblings about that. I know the mm-hmm. NCAA convention was was recently. We saw the the controversy with Cincinnati breaking into the playoff this yep. year, and sort of I know that caused some some rumblings, maybe a little bit of fear among some of those Power Five schools because that is the one where you do have a lot of ties to the the, the local place. Still, I think that's the the one American sport or the one level of American sports where you still do have that, but also because it is a little bit more of a of a meritocracy. If Cincinnati goes undefeated, you got to consider Cincinnati for the playoff, right? I mean, there's nothing stopping Cincinnati from being in it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the college football analogy, I think, is, is a good one because of those ties to place. But also, you know, it is a little bit... You know, we'll see how this plays out with kind of the monetization of name, image, and likeness and the ability to potentially pay players. Um, you know, that creates more market incentives, but it also creates potential for market manipulation. You know, I, 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 I think that still this concept of, of relegation sort of supersedes some of these forces, right? Like you could be, you got to play to the end and you can't do artificial things to protect your advantage whether you earn that advantage or not you can't do artificial things to to protect that the market just sort of doesn't allow that in soccer well if you mess up there's no golden parachute right like you can you can tank the value of some of these historic brands and there are clubs all across europe who have gone through that i mean leeds united at the turn of the century was one of the most famous soccer clubs in the world Mm mm-hmm they spent too much, they failed on the field, and suddenly you get relegated and you're in massive amounts of debt. Yeah. And they have only just returned to the Premier League. I mean, it was 15 or 20 years before this team, which, again, not just a, a, a team in the Premier League, but like one of the most famous brands in the world. 
you didn't hear from him for 15 or 20 years. And I mean, that's not even, that's the best case scenario for some of these teams. I mean, there are historic English clubs yeah. who are in administration, who are who are bankrupt, who have to have to get bailed out. Or oftentimes it's like a crowdfunding thing for these teams to stay alive and not really crowdfunding, but it's other teams giving them money so that this historic brand doesn't vanish, essentially. There's no, there's no safety net. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the other side of yeah. these free market dynamics, right? It creates, you know, the biggest of winners, you know, these giant, you know, uh, sort of a oligopoly, if you will. But it also, uh, the, 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 the mechanism through which businesses can fail is an important mechanism. It's sort of the other side of capitalism that's kind of we've lost sight sure. of a little bit in this country, I think. Um, if there is no safety net, if there is no notion of a bailout, you're going to run your business um, in a different way, yeah. right? It, it, whether it affects your your decision making with risk, whether it affects you know um, it, how you manage your costs, all those things, you're going to run your business, I think, better over time, and it'll lead to better outcomes uh, than if you know that if you fail or you struggle or you lose money, you're going to get floated either by the government or by the other owners in your league or whatever. Um, having a sports, when was the last time a sports team in the United States failed and went out of business? They don't, they don't fail. I mean, the only time you see one of these brands changing is when the owner decides they can make more money elsewhere, like what happened yeah. to the Sonics, right? Yeah. You don't see these teams folding, at least not in the established leagues that we have now. I mean, I, you'd go back to like the ABA, right? Some right. of these leagues that were trying to get off the ground, obviously. The USFL, mm-hmm. and that was a lot before a lot of this. You know, all these structures were created sure. to protect these teams. Right? Yeah, it might right. limit the upside, but it also protects them from failure. Well, and that's the argument. And when it comes to American sports, I mean, you can't have the Dallas Cowboys fail, right? You can't. No. I mean, at least that's the argument that Jerry Jones wants you to believe. You can't have the Dallas Cowboys suddenly cease to become a thing or not be playing in the NFL. So you'll you'll never. Obviously not in the the four traditional American sports. You will never have relegation. It's never going to happen in the MLS either, mm-hmm. because these are traditional American sports owners who have yeah. come in and said, "We're going to protect our investment, and right. I can't have the value of my brand suddenly being cut in half mm-hmm. or just because we have one bad season." So, it's it's such a huge argument in American soccer circles, like, "Oh, promotion and relegation for the MLS." There's there's a lot of upside to it. It's never going to happen. Yeah, yeah. No, billionaires don't like losing their money. Right. Basically, <laughs> I mean, they might like losing it for tax purposes, but uh, yeah, as a business strategy, not a good one. I'm Andrew Houghton, talking here on the Soccer and Snow and Smoke podcast with the University of Montana business professor Justin Angle. Justin, we're we're running out of time a little bit here. I've loved the discussion so far. I just want to get your thoughts real quick on. What have you thought about how soccer has been marketed as a spectator sport, as a TV sport Mm. um, in general in the United States? I mean, you talked about going to some Sounders games, but the MLS was the big push after sort of USA 1996 World Cup. Yep. And I think that the MLS has done a lot for the strength of soccer just in general in America, for the strength of the national team. Of course, MLS, I'm a huge MLS fan. I watch a, a ton of games. I have rabid rooting interests. It seems like it's still trying to catch on a little bit. But what have you thought 
about just the way that's been marketed. I know you're you're a marketing guy. What have you thought about that? Yeah, I think MLS has been a tremendous success kind of at the local level. Sure. Right. Like these, these you know, whether it's Seattle or Portland or Boston, um, they just created these rabid local markets and really tapped into a segment of customers that really want the product, are willing to pay for the product, are willing to, you know, it's 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 competition for attention and devotion. Yep. Right? And those are two things that are in scarcity for all of us, right? And so if you can break through and captivate people, that's a tremendous success. As a sport, I think it's done a poor job. Um, you know, you look at, and you know, and I, I have a couple of different theories that are not well-developed about that. But, but one thing is that I think it's difficult for soccer to break through because Americans like being the best at stuff. Right. Right? And we're not the best. We are far from the best. And so if we can't be the best, it's sort of like, well, I don't, I, I don't want to look in that mirror because it's threatening. So I'm not going to play that game. That's a stupid game anyway. It's you know too fancy. Right. I don't want to do that. I'd rather play football. So there's that as a dynamic. Two, I, I, I feel like... And this this maybe is a little bit of a hot take, Andrew, but I, I just think like the youth sports system in this country has failed, soccer in particular. Soccer's become this industry. And you know, you'd think that you want to get as many kids playing as possible. You know, if if you're trying to create a presence for a new sport in a country like the United States, you need to draw from as many people as possible. You need to make the game popular. And Soccer system is so exclusionary. It's super expensive to join these club teams. The best soccer has been detached from the school system. And if you want to ever stand a chance at getting, you know, onto a high school team or getting a scholarship, you're made to feel like from the age 5 that you need to be a part of this super exclusive club and pay your $2,500 for the cleats and the uniform and the travel team and all this other and select and premiere and these fancy. It's it's a marketplace that has basically become exclusionary. And so, yeah, it's a bunch of rich white kids, which is a declining segment of the population. So, yeah, it it, it makes sense that United States soccer relative to, to the rest of the world has not really improved in a meaningful way. And, and 30 or so years. I love it. I love the hot take. And of course, that makes it more difficult for you to grow a fan base, right? I yes. mean, because even if, you know, let alone the impacts on the national team or the the high level of soccer here, I mean, you're more likely to become a fan if you spent your childhood playing it. Like, you want to get as many people just into the game as possible. I think you're absolutely right. I don't think it's a problem. I mean, that's a problem that is sort of endemic across all of American youth sports. Yeah, yeah it's become that way. In, in baseball and basketball, and I've talked to, I've had club coaches on this podcast in each of the last two episodes, and sort of that's been a big topic. That's what I want to pick their brains about. How do you get away from that? How do you try to invert the typical American youth yeah. sports model? Because th- that is what's important, and, you know, I think soccer has a little bit more of a model for doing that than a lot of American sports, because in American sports, I mean, AAU basketball is never go- going away, because that's the way... They've always done it, and there's no other place to really look for a different system in soccer. I think you can take some more of the philosophies of the European clubs, um, the South American clubs, where, you know, the goal is still to make money, but they realize that you don't make money by, like, winning everything when the kids are 12 years old, right? You want to develop these kids, and eventually they'll turn into great players that you can 
eventually sell, I mean, the best of them. Yeah, it's more of a public good. Sure. Right? That the community um, develops. Like when I played soccer growing up, I was in a youth league. You know, my high school was good. They won like yeah. 10 straight state championships. It was good. Produced a lot of college players. And, you know, I remember from youth league, it's like, the team you were on was determined by whether or not your T-shirt that the town parks and rec gave you the previous year right. still fit. Right. Like your your green jersey still fits. You're on the green team again this year, and the kids from the high school team coached the kids in the youth programs, and it just was it was a community asset. And you know now that you have these private leagues that are competing for families who can pay the tuition to support the coaches. And you know the, the, your place on the team is determined by your ability, but also your ability to go to all the things that cost a lot of money, whether it's a trip or a practice or some optional thing. Um, that creates these market incentives that I think are, are, market incentives are fun. We talked about that a lot in this conversation. But at the top of the funnel, where you're trying to get in as many bodies right. and people into the funnel as possible, you should not have exclusionary systems at that level. Right, and that's the thing. You can't get, like you mentioned, you can't get a college scholarship from just playing for your high school. You can't. You have to be playing in any of these sports. I mean, yeah. unless you're an incredibly special athlete. Mm-hmm. you and have those are to, rare. Absolutely. You have to be playing these summer tournaments, and it's a really easy sell when you put it to the parents like that, like, hey... This is the best route for your kid to get a college scholarship. Absolutely. He's got to be playing all in all the these games. All the messaging to the individual participants in this system explains their actions. They're all acting rationally within right. a system that is creating subpar results. Not a problem that is unique to soccer in no. America. I don't know if you, you have potential solutions, but that's such a deep conversation and, and such a big rabbit hole going down there when we're talking about the American youth sports system. I guess the other thing, what have you thought about the marketing of not the MLS and not American soccer, but sort of soccer on TV, the the big leagues, the Premier League, La Liga, the Bundesliga? That's been the other way that sort of people were trying to take advantage of this this huge, the thing about America is it's thought of this huge untapped yeah. soccer fan base, right? Like you can make so much money if you're the people who connect with the American public who love sports and get them to love soccer, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably... If, if I were to bet, I think there's more potential there to sort of grow the the beautiful game, as you would as you, as it's called, um, in terms of viewership of of these you know world assets versus the MLS. As far as if you're trying to just monetize attention, yeah. And time zone is certainly a challenge. Language is, can be a challenge, but those are you know language is some, certainly something you can overcome. I think. You know, some of the stuff you see on ESPN and the ability to kind of stream um, games from leagues all over the world and kind of pick and choose what you consume, I think it creates consumer choice. And markets where there's consumer choice are, are ultimately areas where you can see success. So, you know, I'm bullish on the potential for um, some of these world-dominant teams to gain share in the United States. Well, that's an easier sell, right? Because yeah, Americans totally. are used to watching... The, the NBA is the best basketball league in the world, mm-hmm. the MLB, the NFL, whatever. You want to see the tip of the spear. You want to see the best players in the world. And that's, I think, why MLS has struggled a little bit, because it's so obvious that these are not the best players in the world. And it, it's a good league. I don't, I'm not trashing on MLS here, but, like, it's so obvious that these are not the best players in the world. And not only that, 
you're able to watch the best players in the world now because I think there's there has been a big expansion of that. Yeah, all... MLS is like akin to college football. Right. Right. Like I might I love watching the Grizz. It's super fun. But, you know, you turn on an NFL game, you're like, I can see the difference pretty sure. clearly. And MLS is similar. Maybe it's a little closer. Um, that's probably debatable depending on what you're watching and when. But Depending but, on who you're comparing. Yeah. yeah, but you see the difference. And, you know, if you can watch the other stuff and you're a casual fan who doesn't understand that the game that much or you don't have a tie to place... Yeah, I'm gonna watch Manchester United. I'm gonna watch the Champions League game because it's really interesting and and it's I can, I don't understand it, but it's really good. Last point here, and I think that's why MLS has done such a good job of sort of marketing the in-person experience a little bit yeah. more because that's something that you you can't get. I mean, it's you can watch Manchester United on TV all you want. Not a lot of people can fly to England, go to a Manchester United game, right? Yep. And the MLS in-person fan experience, and you sort of mentioned this is really top-notch. I mean, the, it's fantastic. The yeah. passion is there. A lot of these stadiums are great. I mean, a lot of teams have been building soccer-specific stadiums, but even the teams that play in football stadiums like Seattle, mm-hmm. like Atlanta United, do a really good job with their in-game fan experience. You have the chants going, the drums, the chant leaders, so it's really easy to pick up. And you're in and out in two hours, right? It's not like you're, you're given your whole afternoon to go to yeah. a college football yeah. game. So I think that's... I think they've done a really good job focusing on and marketing that because, like you said, I mean, if I have a choice of what game to watch on TV, I'm not going to watch MLS. And, of course, I'll watch MLS because that's the only game that's on at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But I think you're right when it comes to the the TV viewership. Justin, anything else to, to add? I mean, I know there's a bunch of rabbit holes we could have gone down here, a bunch of other topics to touch on, but I've enjoyed the discussion, man. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for having me on. And uh, this is, yeah, this is fun stuff to talk about. We don't talk about it often on the business angle. And it's fun to kind of, you know, get a little bit more in the weeds with you, Andrew. So I appreciate the time. Special edition of Soccer and Snow and Smoke podcast. Soccer and Snow and Smoke slash a new angle crossover with Justin Angle, University of Montana business professor. Want to just thank you, Justin, again for taking the time engaging me in such an an entertaining and thought-provoking discussion we'll be back here on soccer and snow and smoke hopefully next week can we go for three weeks in a row we'll see until next time i'm andrew howden